Now, those of you who know me, I typically preach on things like fairy dust and uh, letting you know that you're all loved just the way you are. You never have to change. I do those kinds of things. We're going to mix it up this week and uh, do something that was all sarcasm for those of you who don't know me and look at something perhaps a little bit more intense because it is an intense passage. We want to begin by looking at what the church looked like at this time. What characterized these first Christians? Well, if you were to go to church uh, and be in that church, you would see incredible miracles. You would see a unity in a church that would uh, that the people outside of the church would long to be a part of, but would be terrified to join. You would see incredible growth. People coming to Christ literally every day. You would see boldness. You would see unspeakable joy. And what perhaps is, is most inspiring is in the face of adversity and persecution, all of those things just intensified. You saw, we saw more miracles, more unity, more growth, more boldness, more joy in the face of adversity. So the question is, in the church that, uh, however you want to describe it, the church today, uh, perhaps we don't see all of these things to the same degree. Why is that? Well, should we be preaching a message that we should all be more committed? Should we say that we're maybe a faithless group and that we should learn how to have more faith? Maybe we need to be a little bit less distracted and have less hobbies or something, and we should all be reading our Bibles more. What I'd like to do, though, I don't think it's those things. What I'd like to do is look at what the message is that these uh, first apostles preached and then look at the two reactions to this message and see if we can't learn something about how to experience the kind of life that, these, that this first church experienced. It says in verse 30, uh, this is now describing what the Christian message is. If you want a summary, here it is. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, elsewhere in the Bible as Lord and savior, that he might present Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And then listen to this in verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and intended to kill them. Now, that's the uh, King James Version is cut to the heart. In the NIV that uh, Nate just read, it says that they were furious. Now, as I was reading in the New American Standard, it says they were cut to the quick. Uh, I immediately thought of Acts 2.37, which the first time that Peter preached to the crowds in Jerusalem, it said they were cut to the heart. Now, we have this first group, then in Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart, and they says, brothers, what should we do to be saved? And he says, repent, believe the good news. Amazing summary in verse 38 of what the Christian message is. And then, so you have a cut to the heart thing. The word for that is to be pierced. You're stabbed with the truth. And they're so convicted what do we do? We say, we'll, we'll do whatever you say. We're so remorseful for how we've participated in the death of our Savior and Lord. This is just literally killing us. Then you have now in chapter 5, 
They're also cut. The, the word here means to be sawn through. Isn't that a great word? They've been, they were sawn through. They were, and, uh, and that word now is the opposite, where they're not convicted of anything. They're just furious. And they're so angry, they want to kill the messengers. So what I'd like to do, so you have the same message being preached to one group of people. It's overwhelmingly good news, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to be in right relationship with God. The other is just insulted and wants to kill those who are preaching this message of Jesus Christ, him rising from the dead, forgiving our sins. So let's look at each of these responses in turn and see if we can't learn some things about how we can experience the life that the church experienced in the, uh, in these first, um, in the beginning of the early church. So why furious? Why were they so angry? Why were they cut to the heart in this way that is, was sawn? <clears throat> well, maybe we need to, uh, we need to look a little bit. Uh, we'll put on our psychology hat, maybe just for a moment, and look at what anger is, or what it means to be furious. Why would we get angry? Well, if you look at the literature, they describe anger as a social emotion, or a secondary emotion, meaning there's, there'd be a primary emotion, but what comes out in relationship is a thing called anger. And anger seems to be composed of at least two things. The first is pain. The reason why we get angry is because we've gotten hurt. We were either insulted, we were abused, we were uh, mocked, disrespected, whatever it is, there's some kind of pain that we experience. Now, pain alone doesn't make us angry. What makes us angry is when we have a pain and then we blame somebody or something for that pain. So anger alone doesn't just work on pain, it works on blame. And it says, you did this to me. I'm hurt, and it's your fault. And there's something that rises up in our pain when we feel as though we can direct it at somebody and accuse them for making us feel this way. Now, uh, let me give you an example to try to, um, to unpack uh, how this works. And uh, you might need to concentrate. There's a, there's a man, his name is Edwin Friedman. And he's an author. He's, a, he's a, a Jewish man. He passed away a number of years ago now. But he wrote a book called Friedman's Fables. And he tells a story of, uh, I don't know, do we have? There we go. That's somebody hanging from a bridge, in case you can't tell. It's the best I could find online. Uh, just to, as, you, as you picture something as I'm talking. Here's the, here's the fable that Edwin Friedman tells. And I'll paraphrase it a little bit just so that it fits into our context. But there's a man who's, uh, who's walking on an adventure. And he, the, his life is ahead of him. The, the wind is at his back. He feels like there's a future and a hope for him. And he's walking forward figuratively on this road into his future. And he's crossing over a bridge. And as he crosses over a bridge, there's somebody walking towards him. And as they come closer together, this person looks as though he knows that the person who's on this adventure. But they don't, he doesn't, the person on the adventure doesn't know who this person is, but they look warm and kind of inviting. And, and as they come closer, 
he just has this, uh, he has this warmth about him. And the only kind of strange thing about this is that he has a, has a rope around his waist. Seems kind of strange. Well, as they come close and begin to cross paths, the person with the rope around uh, his waist says, excuse me, sir, would you be so kind as to hold the other end of this rope for me? And so the man of the adventure says, well, you know, he asked in such a nice way, well, of course I would, I would hold the rope. And he says, uh, so he, he grabs hold of the rope, says, yes, I will. He grabs hold of the, hope, the rope. And the, and the man says, now you'll need to hold on tight for a moment. And he jumps over the bridge. And as he jumps over the bridge, the man grabs even harder on the rope, and he can feel the tug as the, as the man is now dangling off of the bridge, and he's hanging onto the rope. And he says to the man, what are you doing? He says, if you don't help me, I'm going to die. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? I, I, I'm, I walked by you innocently. You give me a rope to hold. He goes, yes, and if you don't hang on to this rope, I'm going to plunge to my death. And he goes, this isn't fair. I didn't ask for this. He says, you need to help me. And he says, look, I'm going to, uh, why don't I just, I just pull you up? And so he tries to pull him up, but he's not strong enough to pull him up. And he goes, okay, you've got to help me. He says, I can't help you. It's all up to you to save me. And so he tries to look for something to, to tie the rope off to, and he can't find anything. And so he ends up tying the rope around his own waist, and they're having this conversation. And he says, uh, he says again, he says, I didn't ask for this. I don't know why you've done this to me, but uh, I can't keep doing this. And he says, you must do this. If you don't do this, your life, my life is in your hands. And so this guy has this huge, like, what am I going to do? This is crazy. How did I get into this moment? And so his decision is, um, I can't be responsible for your choices. I can only be responsible for mine. And since you've chosen this, I will honor your choice. And he lets go of the rope. Well, that's a little bit of a sobering Fable, parable, isn't it? Now, I was thinking about this parable, or fable, as I was thinking about our relationship with God. And here's how I picture us going through life. We go through life and we make, we make decisions that aren't great. And we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. And we say to God, as we're going through making poor decisions in all kinds of trouble, we say, would you please save me? And we jump over the bridge. And we say, if you don't save me, it's your fault. And there seems to be this comfort uh, that our society has with whatever would go wrong in our life, it's clearly your fault. And if you don't save me, you're going to be to blame. In our, we had a great D group, uh, discussion group, uh, this last Friday, and we were talking about last week's sermon on Ananias and Sapphira. And the, the main thing that we were struggling with is God seems to be overreacting. Why does he kill two people dead? Barely seems to give them a chance to repent. Strikes them down for lying. I mean, 
That's a little intense. And it was interesting how the perspective naturally went towards there must be something wrong with God. There was no one in our group who were going, I wonder what Ananias and Sapphira did to deserve this. Nobody's talking about that. We're all figuring out, I'm, I think God's good, doesn't look that way. That's what we're mostly talking about. And it seems to me that this is characteristic of our society. We get angry because there's pain in our life, and the first response that we have to the pain is to look for who to blame. And the most convenient person to blame, of course, is God. And we say, it's your fault. Uh, it's your fault for the family that I was born into. Uh, I didn't ask for this personality. I didn't ask for the circumstance that I now find myself in. I'm innocent. I'm an innocent victim. You're the one who's all-powerful. Clearly, it's your fault. And if you uh, were ever to let go of the rope, I would blame you for the outcome of my life, not me. My choices didn't get me here. You got me here. Blame is a fascinating response to the difficulties in our life. And I think it's characteristic. Seldom do I hear people say, ah, I made some bad choices, unless you're in an AA meeting. I, I, I made some bad choices, and uh, I got into this mess, and it's my fault. I seldom hear myself or anyone else talk that way. When I go through a difficult time, the first thing I think about is why God is at fault. Isn't that embarrassing? It's the first place that my mind goes to. I didn't ask for this. I'm like a good guy. I'm a pastor. And you should be, I don't know, particularly nice to me. I don't know. But like, come on, you know, help me help you or whatever it is. But I, I just, like, clearly it's your fault. I can't imagine how this would be my fault. I try so hard in life. And if you would just notice that, you would rescue me. <clears throat> Why are these people angry? They're blaming. I had a nice little thing going. These are all the religious leaders of the day. I had a nice little thing going. I had respect in the marketplace. I had a decent income. We all agreed on it was all going well. And then Jesus came along and messed up the whole thing. God, what are you doing? Gamaliel is quite wise in saying, you know, I don't, I don't think you want to wrestle with God. But this is where they're at. Unless we accept blame for things, we end up trying to kill what makes us feel bad or threaten us. They were so furious, they want to somehow kill it, squash it, make it go away. You know, there's an interesting phrase, if you've, if you've read the Bible, where it talks, it describes hell as the gnashing of teeth. I don't know if you've ever seen this phrase before in the Bible, but it's there. And for the longest of times, I thought that the phrase gnashing of teeth was extreme pain. Because it's a lake of burning fire, and so you, you know, that, that would hurt. I came to realize that the phrase gnashing of teeth is a demonstration of anger. 
that it says that people who encountered Jesus would gnash their teeth. So here you have this message. Um, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. How could that ever be bad news? Well, wouldn't you know what it can be? And here's how it works. First of all, you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Now, who of us in this room thinks that? Who thinks, yeah, you know, my fault that Jesus hung on a cross? It's like, no, it's not my fault. First of all, that was 2,000 years ago. And if I was there, for sure, I wouldn't be like the Pharisees or the crowd. Which leaves no one. But anyways, but for sure, I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't be like them. I know that. So you killed him. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince. You want to be my, you want to be my Lord. Well, that's offensive. I don't know that I want you to be my Lord. And I saw what you did to Ananias and Sapphira. That doesn't look like somebody who's very trustworthy. I don't know that I want that. And you say that you're, you're my savior. Why would you think I need saving? Why would you even think that? I'm doing fine. And to bring Israel to repentance. Repentance means that there's something wrong with us that we would need to change. I think that's the fourth offense. And finally, for the forgiveness of sins. It's another offense. You think I need forgiving? No, no. I need understanding and sympathy. I'm a victim. I'm not the criminal. And if you give me a minute, I'll show you how that's true. No, no, no. Uh, other people are criminals. I've been wounded by the people around me. And uh, you should be impressed that I'm surviving. I was talking to my mentor a few months ago, and he said something that I had never heard before, and it, and it fascinated me. Uh, for some reason, we were talking about anger, and I don't remember why. And he says, uh, when people say, I don't care, that's a sign of anger. I thought, really? That doesn't sound angry. What's well, this idea of passive-aggressive? But the idea is, is that uh, anger is just under the surface. And if you poke that at all, it would explode. And I feel as though that's what's characteristic of our society. We say, are you opposed to Jesus Christ? No, I just don't care. I'm not mad. I'm not furious. Nothing saw in me. I'm fine. Great. Then repent for the forgiveness of sins so that you can honor Jesus Christ as your Lord and be saved from your wickedness. Who do you think you are talking to me that way? It's just below the surface. And so I, I feel as though there's this, uh, at least Canadian, uh, niceness that is masking an interior rage that motivates us way more than we would imagine it does. But it's too much energy and it might make us look bad. So we just say, I don't care. I know I should read my Bible. But really, by the time I, I, I go to the gym and watch my favorite shows, there's hardly any time left over. Surely God is reasonable. 
But what if I don't care is a thinly veiled cut to the heart, furious that God would have demands on us. One of the most difficult things, I, 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 I mean, I'm preparing for this sermon this week and I'm just eaten up inside every day. I can hardly manage how I'm feeling because I go, Greg, really? Really another sermon on repentance? Really? Really, do you have to go there again? They've heard it. <laughs> but what if you and I use Jesus as a scapegoat to not look at our own wickedness? What if that's true for us? So what is the difference then between those who are cut to the heart that wanted to kill Jesus and those that were cut to the heart that says, what should we do to be saved? So gripped by going, you're right. I did put him on the cross. I did kill the king of kings and lords. What, what, what are they like if, uh, if the furious people have uh, pain plus blame equals uh you know, God's at fault. What is this other group like? Well, I think they also have pain. They're cut to the heart. This isn't uh, some kind of uh, reasonable, yes, I see the arguments, and I admit that God exists, and so I should probably get on his good side. That makes logical sense to me. This isn't like that. They're cut to the heart, and they're so moved, they'll do anything to be in right relationship with God. They experience pain. And, and here's the difficult part that I was trying to figure out how to avoid. They also had pain plus blame. But the person that they were blaming was themselves. Now, I've taken enough uh, counseling to know that what I just said is offensive. Because from what uh, I've understood that the reason why we feel condemned is because we blame ourselves for things. And the appropriate response to get out of that is to have a positive outlook on ourselves and other people and to be able to say that, okay, yes, I did some things wrong, but here's the 20 reasons why. And besides that, I didn't really mean it. That's how I experience or somebody tells me how I should get out of blame. I think there's, I think that, uh, uh, pardon me, naive positivity never gets us out of condemnation. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know, I've apologized to people sometimes when I've done something wrong and their response to me is, oh, you probably didn't mean it. And in my head, I'm going, oh, yes, I did. I thoroughly meant it. I actually meant more than what I displayed. But uh, I have a job as a pastor, so I have to keep up an image. But really, inside, um, you don't want to know what's going on in there. It's not great. Like, if you, like, as if somebody looking inside would go, oh, wow, that's nice. Like, that's not true. It's just not true. If somebody looked inside, they go, ooh, 
I didn't know. I'm sorry. Let's shut the door on that. I've been, I've been remarking, uh, Pastor Matt um, gave me a book. I, I don't know whether it was, you know, he had a secret message in, uh, in him giving me this book, but it's a prayer book that uh, is, I don't know, it's 200 pages long, and it's a prayer every, you know, uh, it's a series of just one-page prayers. And so I've been going through it now for a number of months, praying a prayer each night. And it's by a group of Christians called the Puritans. And uh, as far as I can tell, they just should have had one page because it says the same thing every single time. And it's, it goes like this. I'm a worm. You're really good. God, forgive me. That's how it works every single time. And so I'm reading this every single night. And I'm going, this is good for me? Like, I already know I'm screwed up. And you're telling me yet again that this is my heart. And I think these prayers are trying to set me free. Do you know how hard it is? You know, because you, you do it probably as much as I do, how hard it is to keep up the image of being nice when inside we're furious and don't know what to do about it. The most healing moments in my life is one I've said, I'm at fault. Without a but. And then have experienced being forgiven. Not just, I'm sure you didn't mean it. I'm sure you didn't mean it. I know it's not true. So there's nothing healing about that. But when I get to be forgiven of my crimes, I'm set free. But I can't be set free of something I don't admit I did. And this is what we, this, this is what we're caught in in our society. We're going around saying everybody really, really is good, especially me. And, uh, and, and, and let's just all believe that about one another. But then what keeps happening is the pain keeps mounting up in our life of how we've been hurt. And we keep hurting others over and over again. And nobody talks about forgiveness. Just about looking on the bright side and overlooking. It doesn't work. We only can embrace personal conviction when our identity is not in our personal goodness. We've been talking a lot in this series about this idea of identity, that, uh, that whether it's in our ethnicity, in our gender, in our social status, all of these are false identities. It doesn't mean that that's not who we are. It just means that there needs to be something better than that to define us. And that better than is Jesus. He's the only one who's worthy to define us. And so we are, if we're defined by being a good person inside, then we're going to have to defend that identity. But as we defend that identity, more and more condemnation comes upon us without forgiveness, and it crushes us. The only way to get free is to give up the identity of being good and to say, no, I'm not. And finally, God goes, great. I was wanting to forgive you. You just needed to admit you did something wrong. And now that you've admitted something wrong, now I can set you free. I don't want to condemn you. But it's so ironic, isn't it? That the way to not condemnation, the way to forgiveness is actually through blame. But we can be so afraid of blame, we never get to be forgiven. There's something incredibly freeing about being wrong. 
and not blaming others, but accepting personal responsibility. I think often of Luke 18.9, describes two people who are praying. And the one, and it says of the one who prays with great arrogance, it says to those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. And he says, Father, I just thank you for how great I am and I'm not like other bad people. But what if I'm the bad person? What if I'm the bad person in the story? Wow. Maybe that's the way forward. Now here's, let's go back to the fable for a minute because this is where it gets tricky. The fable seems to suggest that the man who threw himself over, the argument could be made that he was actually confessing his need of someone. That could be true, right? Like, save me. I need help. The argument could be made. The argument could be made. You could be sitting, listening to me right now and say, look, uh, you don't have to tell me that I'm bad. I know I'm bad. I know that. You don't have to you know, rub my nose in it. You don't have to make me feel guilty. There's not a day that goes by that I don't feel guilty for the way that I behave. Now, how can you tell whether that's okay or not? It's, uh, it's when the man says, uh, change. And then they go, who do you think you are telling me to change? Do you know how hard I've tried? No, I need to be saved. No, no, you need to change. Now, this is hard in the Christian church because we're, we talk a lot about uh, the forgiveness of sins and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and rightly so, because it's part of the gospel. The gospel begins with uh, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. You, made a, you, you did wrong things, and it's your fault, and you should change. Have biblical support. Second Corinthians chapter seven verse eleven. This is this is talking about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, and this is what it says about godly sorrow. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what readiness to see justice done. It goes on. There's a long list. Here's what I'm afraid of happens inside of the church. We go, oh, I'm wrong. Jesus, forgive me, and then Jesus says, obey me. And we go, no, 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 no. No, I didn't sign up for obedience. I signed up for forgiveness. If you're sorry for your sin, stop it and change. Well, that's hard. But we see in the Corinthian church, they go, then I am going to change. And of course, if we change, it would only be by the grace of God. And he would administer his forgiveness instantaneously because it's who he is. But what if what's holding us up, why would somebody phone me now? Um, if uh, this sign that we're still acting like a victim is not 
even if we admit that we've done something wrong, is as if somebody challenges us to change, then we can see what's going on in our hearts. If, uh, if I hurt Debbie and I go, oh man, I really messed up. And she goes, yes, you did. And I go, I'm guilty. And she goes, yes, you are. And I go, okay, uh, would you please forgive me? Okay. Good. Are we finished? No. It's show me the money. <laughs> it's uh, change. I don't, I don't care how bad. I mean, I don't cry, but if I did, like, uh, like, I don't care if you're crying, like change. No, 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 no. I feel bad, but like not bad enough where I would change. That's a different level of bad. And that's where the gospel comes in. And someday the spirit of God will give me the strength to be able to change. And I'll get onto that as soon as I feel like he's giving me the strength to change. <clears throat> but until that time, honey, Forgiveness is what it's looking like. We're just going to need more of here now and a long time from now. Are you following me? This is, uh, this is hard. But can you feel maybe you're getting a little furious with me? Going, hey, this isn't like, hold on here. You're asking me to be responsible? I became a Christian so I could be irresponsible. Luke 7, 47 says, Whomever has been forgiven little, loves little. Whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. What if, uh, what if a receiving of the gospel looks like obedience? What if the receiving of the gospel frees us to receive and to give love? <clears throat> I am very, very convinced, and I'm happy to talk with you. Maybe you can show me otherwise. I think that what's holding us up is not whether the Spirit of God is present in the church. I, I walk into this room, I feel the presence of Jesus because you're here, and Jesus is with his people. I can, it's tangible to me. It's palpable. I think we have been forgiven. Those of you who call yourself a Christian, I think we've been forgiven. But it's interesting, in verse uh, 32, it says, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What if God's waiting for obedience? What if he's waiting for such a conviction that we would actually change? And do you not think that he would rush into that moment with his grace and empower us to do what our hearts are convicted, cut to the heart, to do. Conclusion. Romans 3.17 says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Aren't you glad you came to church today? If our identity is in our goodness, we will not risk a life of faith, humility, or love. If our identity is in our goodness, we will not risk a life of faith, humility, and love. We won't. It's too risky. Uh, the whole foundation of our life will be destroyed. But when our foundation is in Jesus Christ, 
we can be humble. We can be faith-filled. We can be loving. We can be wrong. And our identity won't be shaken because our identity is not in our goodness. Our identity is in his goodness. And it's in him that we trust. First Corinthians, we'll close with this. First Corinthians 1.23 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. You know, I pray, I'm, I'm reading through my daily devotions right now, I'm reading through the Psalms, and it refers to this, uh, a stumbling block and an offense. And I pray often, Father, offend my heart. Offend my heart. I still think I'm rich. I still think basically I'm a good person, just with some minor pain issues that I'm working through. And so just, and, and I'm sure you see that in me. So just affirm that in me. I don't think this is the gospel. The gospel is not a call to get more committed or faith-filled or to become less distracted. It's to repent and believe the good news. To so believe the good news that we can have the courage to be wrong. Say one final thing. Worship team, you can come forward. Um, You've just got to ask yourself the question, all right? David will say, uh, whether I'm preaching or someone else is preaching, it's not about me at all. She says, uh, I don't get why after a sermon, people don't run to the altar weeping, crying out for forgiveness. Because I don't know why people aren't doing that. So ask yourself, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we cut to the heart? If we're not cut to the heart and say, I don't care, maybe we're really angry. And maybe we're still blaming God. And maybe our crime is blaming him instead of accepting personal responsibility and letting the fault lie where it should. I think as we would let ourselves be wrong, we would find ourselves being forgiven and empowered. But my friends, I fear that we don't let ourselves be wrong because we've bought into a Western gospel that says man is good and we just need to learn to get along and tap into that.